Net Zero is in every sustainability conversation. Met with enthusiasm, then skepticism, the big question still missing a concrete answer is how? The scale of pledge and target setting is really exciting and really impressive, but the underlying theme to that is we also very quickly need to go from that to performance. Welcome to How to Net Zero, a podcast by Impact Verification Organization SustainCert, looking at net zero through the lens of those who work to make it happen. What interventions can deliver the most meaningful change? How do we account for greenhouse gas interventions in our supply chain if we're launching them? How can we accurately translate data from upstream interventions into downstream scope three reporting? In each episode, we explore implementation challenges with industry experts, climate front runners, carbon geeks, and dive into promising approaches or innovation that can help overcome them. Welcome to the first episode of How to Net Zero. I'm your co-host, Lucy von Sturmer, and I am joined in this series by Marianne Vera, CEO of SustainCert. When I first began thinking about net zero, I started digging around for a universal definition of the term. And I found myself lost in a sea of information on various standards, methodologies, and guidance around different types of climate claims, what they mean, and what defining factors make a corporate climate claim credible. It is safe to say that after some initial exploration, I was more than a bit confused and a little disillusioned. It became apparent to me that understanding the defining factors of net zero, carbon neutral, and other climate claims was complex, and perhaps the reason for the growing issue of greenwashing. With more global companies committing to net zero targets and making climate claims, I knew it would be important for me to drill down into these concepts to better understand what they mean. So to inaugurate the How to Net Zero podcast, a series focused on navigating climate claims, it, this seemed like a good place to start. Throughout this series, Marianne has invited industry experts to help clarify the definitions and criteria for making credible net zero and neutrality claims. We'll discuss the requirements, various initiatives, and global standards that companies should adhere to if they want to make credible claims. This first episode of the series aims to answer this very question. Welcome, Marianne. Thanks again for joining me today to talk about the issue with brands and companies making the wrong environmental or climate claims. I'm looking forward to learning more. Hi, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Environmental claims and making the wrong claims is a very important topic, in my view, because every time there's a slightly inaccurate or even, I would say, purposely misleading claim, there is some form of greenwashing going on. And so in my view, greenwashing takes roots in the wrong claims being made. And so that's why I'm really excited to talk about claims with you today. This is really interesting to learn more about what constitutes greenwashing. Is it um, ill intent and lies or is it overstating claims and impact? So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to this conversation. In April, the World Federation of Advertisers issued global guidance on environmental claims, which sets forth six key principles that the World Federation of Advertisers believes that marketeers should comply with when making green marketing claims. The guidance was developed with the help of the International Council for Advertising Self-Regulation and the European Advertising Standards Alliance, and with support of the UK's Advertising Standards Authority. 
Can you possibly walk us through some of the key principles that the World Federation of Advertisers outlined for brands to comply with when making climate claims? Sure, I'm gonna give it a go, Lucy, and and it's it's a pretty complex topic, and there's a lot in there. Uh, starting from the start, I would say it's really interesting that this report is targeting marketers uh, and uh, really aims openly at helping marketers avoid greenwashing. Uh, that already sends a really key piece of information, which is that there's a tension between the marketing teams in those large companies and the sustainability teams. And usually the statements that are being made externally come out of the marketing teams, whereas the impact and the decarbonization strategies are uh, implemented by the sustainability or operational teams. Um, and that can uh, help us understand where greenwashing takes its roots, basically in this uh, lack of coordination and communication between those two, two sides uh, of the business. Um, uh, credible claims are clearly the solution against greenwashing, um, but they aren't necessarily always the best ones from a marketing perspective. And so that's the other tension. Uh, marketing teams have an incentive to make the most compelling statements um, and obviously those aren't necessarily the true ones or the most accurate ones when it comes to impact and that's why it's so important to educate marketers as well uh, so clearly you were asking me about the report and some of the key principles uh, underpinning credible claims i think the report touches on uh, three overarching principles that we should all keep in mind the first one is to make sure that claims are not misleading. The second one is to hold evidence to substantiate those claims. It's the responsibility of the companies to have the evidence to back every single claim they make, basically. And the third one, which is uh, to not omit any material information, obviously. Uh, so the three principles can help us frame um, uh, the discussion around what makes a credible claim. I think it's interesting that you touch on the role of marketing, which is to sell an idea or to sell a concept and to excite people. And um, I would definitely recognize that tension between um, what is an aspiration or maybe uh, communicators focusing too much on one part of a business and ignoring the other. Obviously, greenwashing is a growing issue in terms of public image and reputation, but how do you see the landscape changing and what are the other risks with making wrong claims? Clearly, now I would say that the, our environment is changing and making wrong claims is no longer only a reputational risk, it has now become a legal risk. Um, making wrong or misleading environmental claims creates legal risk for a number of reasons and primarily because countries, at least a number of countries, are starting to regulate climate-related claims. Um, and companies that are misleading customers by telling customers something that is not true about the climate positive or climate um, negative or carbon negative uh, um, dimension of their product can be held accountable um, in front of uh, uh, the court. Uh, and so that is uh, clearly new uh, information and new development. 
there's a, a, a meme going around right now um, on social media reminding everybody that this is the coldest summer they will ever know, and it's incredibly hot. So I think as well as the physical landscape heating up, we're definitely seeing uh, the legal landscape heating up. The KLM Fly Responsibly campaign is right now the first campaign that's being um, targeted for greenwashing and is... Um, yeah, facing a lawsuit. So let's see what the outcome of that is. But definitely important that, that companies understand the claims they're making and can back them up. Marion, I'd love to know, why did you choose to invite Edward Hanrahan to discuss this with us? Ed was a pretty natural choice for this episode, Lucy, for a number of reasons. Ed has been a leading figure in the voluntary carbon market since 2007, and we've known each other for almost that long, I think, Ed. Yeah. Among other things, Ed has led the growth and development of Climate Care, now called Climate Impact Partners, and you'll tell us more about that, Ed, in a, in a minute. Climate Care is an organization that I really see and consider to be at the leading edge uh, of the voluntary carbon markets, and their focus is really on carbon offset projects that are changing people's lives on the ground. So in our jargon, we call them development-focused offset projects. And the team at Climate Care has won many awards uh, for their work. Uh, and I think they've become one of the highest scoring B Corps in the world as well. Ed, uh, you were one of the founding architects of ICRO, I believe. It's, it's a pretty terrible acronym, I-C-R-O-A. <laughs> but it plays a really important role as the industry body. Uh, aimed at raising standards in voluntary carbon markets. And one of the things, the great thing that ICRA did was to develop a code of best practice for offsets and for corporate carbon strategies that include offsets. Uh, so that really helped drive credibility in the market. Uh, I believe, Ed, that you remain active in the market uh, nowadays and that on top of your activities there, you're also an impact investors. Uh, so we'd be uh, interested to learn more about that. So to get us started, Ed, it'd be great to learn more about the work that Climate Care does and how that relates to our topic of climate claims today. Sure. That was a good uh, sort of throwback. Yeah, to whenever anyone mentions sort of 2007, it makes me feel really old. Um, I don't think I had any gray hair back then. So Climate Care has been, you know, one of the market leaders um, in the voluntary carbon market, also alongside natural capital partners here in the UK. Obviously, everybody also knows South Pole Carbon. We were sort of some of the early cohort of um, organizations that found different ways of um, financing emission reduction projects and removals projects um, on the ground. You know, climate care, as you say, our focus was very much on development-oriented projects, projects that, as well as reducing emissions, basically have a measurable impact on people's lives. And that became a real sort of focus for us, um, very much focused on the project side with offices in Nairobi, etc. And then, you know, we were for a while part of JP Morgan, large investment bank, and then we uh, bought that climate care back out and became independent again from 2011. Um, and we worked through sort of that period, really exactly as you say, trying to drive standards, trying to put sort of minimum levels of integrity around uh, the way offsets were sort of um, talked about and sold to, to clients and the way that clients would then and corporate clients would then talk about those in, in their marketing as well. Um, and we did that very collaboratively across the, um, you know, across the voluntary carbon market community, working with NGOs 
um, working with our competitors and you know working with project developers and the standards organizations as well like like yourself so um yeah really um you know interesting times there through that lost decade of 2011 through to sort of 2020 and a lot of learning through those things that are now starting to come through now um, particularly when we talk about things like you know financing contributions rather than you know really being reliant on that end fungible credit unit as it were thanks ed and we'll talk about those new claims during the conversation to finish maybe on, on climate care for now at this stage I'd love to understand why it was important for you and climate care to be uh, driving those best practices in the market. Why did you did you think it was a good use of your time and of your energy? Yeah, look, I think, you know, at the heart of climate care was really a focus on driving ambition, driving quality and driving integrity. When I first came to climate care, I was living in Australia on the other side of the world um, and I was doing some work for a an organisation that was doing similar things in Australia, but the integrity wasn't there, the attention to detail wasn't there, and I didn't feel that there was really that commitment, exactly that to sort of development. So I looked around and it was very clear that climate care, that integrity was there and that curiousness and constant drive to, to improve. So I came up to climate care from there. And that was something that, that has always sat within climate care from, from, from the very beginning. You know, integrity and the quality of the claims and the quality of the projects have just always been a focus for us through that period. Yeah, and I think, you know, the bulk of the people who work there are environmentalists. They join climate care because they want to, you know, deliver impact on a on a daily basis. And, you know, improving the way we deliver that impact is is a natural part of that. Thanks, Ed, for that. It's really interesting to, to understand um, also the motivations of the people uh, behind um, the company name. To our topic of today, this topic of claims and, and what makes a claim credible, uh, what is the, the difference between a credible claim and greenwashing? Could you help us maybe to, to get our head around the different definitions that are out there? We hear a lot about net zero, carbon neutral, carbon positive or climate positive. I think there are even some companies that call themselves carbon balanced. So what do those uh, claims mean in a, in a layperson's term? Uh, and what are their, their differences really and, and similarities between them? Sure. So look, let's start with net zero. And I think, you know, the, the best thing to do, of course, is to take the Paris Agreement definition. You know, we all want to be aligned with Paris or exceeding Paris. So the Paris Agreement definition, I think, is achieve a balance between anthropogenic emissions by sources and removals by sinks of greenhouse gases in the second half of this century. So what does that actually mean? Well, it's a target of, you know, and you've used the word balance there, um, to be achieved by taking the amount of emissions that, let's say, a company or a country emits. And in the Paris Agreement definition, it talks about um, balancing that with absorbing or removing within the sink the same amount from the atmosphere. You know, but it does talk about in the second half of the century in Paris. So, you know, my personal view there is that, you know, there is a glide path towards moving towards all removals and that, you know, we need to, yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the key thing here and the thing that all these things have in common is 
you know, we're taking full responsibility for all of those residual emissions in one way or another and, you know, ensuring that we are balancing those with an equivalent um, reduction or removal. And to me, best practice here is a movement where the mix shifts over time from emission reductions towards removals. You know, there aren't enough removals projects or opportunities for removals uh, at present anyway, and it's madness not to reduce emissions now, in my view, uh, that will need to be removed later. So it is psychologically easier and to think about and imagine and more comforting to think that you balance emissions that you put into the atmosphere with removing or absorbing those emissions. But we need to be realistic about the capacity of sinks to do that at, at present. Okay. So, so you're saying Ed, in the short term, let's not forget about using reductions and financing reductions, but over time, as stated in the Paris Agreement, there will need to be more and more investments into sinks and removals. But uh, for the sake of accelerating climate action, we cannot discount investments in reductions in the short term. Is it the same then for a company to say that it's net zero or that it's carbon neutral? Are those claims interchangeable in your view? No. So net zero is a sort of, I mean, net zero is a target to move towards an absolute state of net zero that a company will exist within. Carbon neutrality has more of a, and, and you know, net zero will apply and must apply to the full footprint and the full scope of a, a company's activities through scope three, scope one, two, and three. With carbon neutrality, it can be more defined and you have, you know, and it refers to, so you can be carbon neutral within one year. It doesn't mean you've reached that state of net zero. So, you know, yes, it applies that exact same concept of balancing where um, you have in net zero, you know, your the emissions that you, you emit are uh, reduced or removed an equivalent amount of real verified emission reductions. The concept is exactly the same, but what we're talking about is the scope and the duration of uh, which can be, doesn't need to be total for carbon neutrality. So it could be your product line for one year. So you could have um, like a product that is carbon neutral in a given year, but the company as a whole is not net zero. And net zero is more like something into the future, like a future state once uh, the company has fully decarbonized. That's right. Uh, that makes it. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that, Ed. So, so why is there so much discussion and debate about those definitions? Do you think there's just a lack of clarity on what being net zero mean? Why do we see so much headlines in, in, the, in the press on, on greenwashing these days? Yeah, so they're two sort of slightly separate conversations or, or, or questions. And I think, you know, let, let's address the first one as to why is there such, such confusion. Yeah, I think, as you said earlier on, you know, we see carbon balanced, we see carbon positive, we see X, Y, and Z. And most of those things have come out usually because of some form of third party that is just trying to differentiate its offering, I guess, if you like, to what else uh, is out there. And that can be done with the best of intention, or it can be done, you know, purely as a, as a commercial differentiator. I don't think it's massively helpful. I think the one other term that we absolutely do need to, to 
think about and, and really focus on more than we do is the absolute zero um, opportunity because you know you know opportunities to become absolute zero where you cease to emit anymore are very very difficult but it is possible and there are um, you know organizations who are, have a track to absolute zero you know being almost entirely powered by renewables and I think that you know renewables that they own, so I think that is a you know a, a target that, that we all need to look at. In terms of things like carbon positive, carbon balanced, and those sorts of things, I don't think they're particularly helpful because they are not really claims that you can verify. They're quite nebulous. Some of the claims, from the point of view of you know, how do you put your arms around what climate positive really is or, or, or climate balanced? Having said which, I'm very very keen. But what we don't do is dissuade people away from ambition of taking, you know, first and foremost, you know, what we, we absolutely do need to do is make sure that people are taking full responsibility for their residual emissions and driving their, their direct emissions down. So setting targets like net zero uh, with, a, with a clear pathway or framework upon which they will reduce their direct emissions and how they will take responsibility for those residual emissions is really, really important. So some, and, and you know, actually particularly important because and I think one thing we shouldn't remember is that you know, we ran a report last year and 62% of the Fortune 500 are still not, uh, still don't have a net zero target. So for me, the real people we should be concerned about are those, I mean, we need to worry about greenwashing as well. We absolutely do. And we can come on to that. But, you know, what I'm really concerned about are those 62% of Fortune 500 companies that don't have a net zero target in place and are seemingly thinking they can carry on without really addressing climate within their organizations. That's interesting, Ed. Thanks for pointing that out because it's true that, that there's a tendency to focus on greenwashing and corporates that are making claims that may not be completely accurate or could be misleading. But there's also uh, the elephant in the room, which is the 62% that aren't doing anything. And so obviously they can't be accused of any greenwashing. Clearly those 62% aren't playing their part and that should be that should be addressed as well. Back, Ed, to your point earlier about one of the key principle behind credible climate action being that a company needs to take full responsibility for their entire scope one, two, and three emissions. What role can play offsets in, um, in doing that? What is, uh, in your view, the role of offsetting in sort of delivering against ambitious targets or towards net zero or carbon neutral claims, in your view? Yeah. You know, one of the key things that people don't think about with offsetting is that it exists to really bring to life that price on carbon for your residual emissions. So, you know, over the last 10 years when emission reductions have been really, really cheap, that hasn't really been part of it. But now we see um, obviously prices rising and people have to think very, very carefully. So one of the, the roles of any emission trading program, whether it is compliance or voluntary, is to put an uncomfortable price on carbon that, of course, spurs people to invest more in internal or direct emissions. And, you know, for 
any carbon market, be it voluntary or compliance, to work, that's what it has to be. So now we are over the cost of abatement in, in uh, many, many of the project types that we're talking about. And we're getting to the point where you know, people are looking at 30 euro, 40 euro sort of pricing for removals credits moving forward and saying, well, hold on a minute. Actually, I can invest. Uh, there is a business case now for me to reduce my internal emissions by 50, you know, at 50 euros, 60 euros a ton, where that didn't really exist when external emission reductions were basically trading out all the surplus at one or two euros. So, you know, that is a primary role of the uh, of voluntary carbon markets that is often underlooked, and I think people uh, or overlooked, and I think people, you know, really need to, to to understand that that you know when a CFO is faced with a choice, a CFO is faced with a choice of I can reduce my emissions internally, and I'll spend X on doing it. If I have, if I've got a 10 million ton residual footprint, and it's costing me $30 a ton, I'm going to think very, very carefully about my internal investment in reducing emissions, and I'm going to double down on that. So that's super important as a role it plays to really drive ambition in the um, internal reduction. But of course, you know, what we talked about is climate responsible here. And for me, that is my favorite term of all of them, because I think it cuts through that marketing hyperbole of claims, you know. We produce product or service X. We are reducing our emissions, but we are responsible for this residual negative impact on the climate, and we are going to take responsibility for that. That doesn't make us a climate hero. Uh, it just makes us a responsible citizen, a responsible corporate citizen. And you know, for me, that is, you know, that should be a, a mandatory situation. You know, we'll talk a little bit later on about what I would like to see happen. But I think, you know, it should be mandatory to take full responsibility for your emissions one way or another. If you don't want to offset those emissions using, you know, a verified emission reduction or an equivalent future claim, uh, whichever may, may, that may be, then you should have to pay into a fund that would generate that equivalent amount. Now, clearly, you know, a mandatory price on carbon, as we look around the world, that inflation coming up is not something we're going to see anytime coming in anytime soon. Unfortunately, that ship has, has probably sailed now. It would have been a great thing to have done in the last decade uh, with all the growth we saw in markets. But, you know, that is highly unlikely to be something that government's going to layer on at the moment. But that is really where we, you know, where we really need to get to, to my mind. This has just been such a fascinating just to hear you both talk about this. I think, you know, as a, as a climate activist, these are incredibly uncomfortable conversations because it's easier just to write off the role of offsetting and just disagree with it than maybe engage and to, to hear some of the positive drivers. So thanks for sharing that, Ed. Imagining myself in the role of the CFO and having to make that decision about the the cost of my offsets, surely it leads into the temptation of choosing to buy cheaper, less quality offsets. Do you see that happening? And and yeah, is that is that something that we should be worried about? Yeah, I definitely see that happening. And I think it's definitely something we should be worried about. You know, what happened here was that we had a massive 
we're, we're dealing with a lag here of a massive surplus of offsets that were generated in that first carbon market cycle between 2006 and 2011, 2012. And, you know, those credits, those older vintage credits have sort of been sat around for a very, very long time and are sort of dragging down or did drag down pricing um, in the market through that last decade. What I think has happened now is that the market has really bifurcated into leaders who are absolutely 100% focused on quality of what they do and the integrity of what they do. These are people with multi-billion dollar consumer brands who are not going to risk the, or knowingly risk, I should say, the, the, the sort of greenwash claims, uh, but also don't want it. They don't want to buy this stuff if it's non-additional, if it's been sitting around. And actually, who they buy from is also massively important in that as well to, to a lot of these guys. So, you know, those are the same people who are now pre-funding large removal projects over the next 20 to 30 years and not waiting for the credits to come through. They're taking project risk and they are, um, you know, looking at this. And that makes good climate sense, but also makes great commercial sense because as the market prices are rising, they are basically owning that asset. With the people who are using the older, low-quality credits. And what I should say is that the market itself, the collective, if you like, of separate companies that have been present in the voluntary carbon market have excluded those credits pretty much for the last 10 years. They have just not been saleable within the voluntary carbon market because of you know, some of the accrual reasons. But now what has happened is with the vast amount of demand and particularly where we see you know, things like LNG shipments being called carbon neutral and people buying the very, very cheapest credits possible to apply to some wholesale shipments, which can then in the supply chain be called carbon neutral. That, has, that is where these credits have started to, to surface again. So there's a real shift there or a real sort of divide, if you like, between commoditized low quality credits and the highest quality sort of forward credits and development-based credits which are being generated at the moment. Building on that, Ed, so, so what makes a good offset? What makes a, a good offset and, and why are they so difficult to find from a corporate perspective or building on, on Lucy's CFO question? If I'm the CFO, then what do I need to look for in order to be 100% sure that the offsets uh, we're buying are, are high-quality offsets? Yeah. So what you need to look for is first and foremost, obviously, something that has come through a reputable and recognizable standard with a track record associated with it. So, you know, that narrows down and actually, you know, as a as your first level insurance layer, you know, does it meet those criteria? Has it been verified and issued by either Vera or the gold standard. You know, there's a handful of other smaller standards as well, which have high quality levels. Beyond that, you then start to get into that level of subjective scoring, which is super important because not all credits that genuinely reduce a ton of carbon are as strong as others. And there are trade-offs. And I mean, you know, I think it's been a few years since once, I think, Marion, that we all looked at these spider charts that basically say, okay, well, we might take a slight trade-off in financial additionality if the gender impact or jobs impact 
is has a higher score here or X, Y, and Z. You know, the answer to that is not a very, very simple one, but, you know, you need to work with a trusted provider who will guide you through, work out what you really want to achieve from your portfolio, both in terms of financially, but also from a other impact point of view. And, you know, make sure that, you know, you're looking beyond just the project and the credit to who financed it was the you know are there any politically exposed persons in it corruption all of these sorts of things now a lot of the credits obviously are coming from projects located in the developing world where there are varying levels of governance in some of those areas and so we need to be very very clear of what people's tolerance what corporates different tolerances for you know those sorts of things are and how they feel about helping you know, localized communities out in areas that may have, you know, difficult government relationships, et cetera, those sorts of things. So that's a pretty roundabout answer. But the, the reason for that is, you know, I don't think it is that difficult to find a good, good project and good credits. I think, you know, just as if you were, that's a bit like me sort of saying, well, you know, God, it's really hard to find good IT suppliers. You've just got to go to somebody who knows what they're doing and work with them to do it. But what perhaps the most important part of the question was, what should the CFO do? And this is really, really important because C-suite buy-in and understanding that the path to net zero is a core business integrity issue that goes beyond and business risk issue that goes beyond an add-on of buying offsets for residual emissions and it goes to the heart of can my organization be sustainable with a carbon price of 60 70 euros a ton can i still make a profit in there and so these are the sort of planning that the cfo needs to bring in and i think once we get the senior risk officers in these organizations actively engaged in it, I think you'll find that a lot of these greenwashing claims will start to subside because quite often, I don't think the greenwashing claims are malicious. I think they are over-enthusiastic and often put into place by, don't wish to malign marketing departments, but marketing departments or ad agencies who don't have a really good understanding of the underlying realities of, of, of what is happening on the ground. Thanks for bringing that up, Ed. We were actually looking at a, at a recent report providing claims guidance specifically to marketers to educate them on what credible claims actually mean and how to avoid greenwashing because misleading claims or incomplete claims or overstatements in claims uh, obviously create a greenwashing risk. And so it, it's great to see that, that marketers are now also being the, the target of those guidance documents. I think this one was, was published by the World Federation of Advisors. So we talked quite a bit about the CFO. What would be your advice to the marketers? Uh, how can they make sure that their claims are both credible from an environmental integrity standpoint, but also sexy and appealing to their target audience. So, you know, this, and this is part of the issue, you know, I'll go back to my view earlier, you know, being climate responsible, and that's taking 100% responsibility for the emission, for what you emit in pursuit of profit, does not make you a climate hero. It just makes you a good corporate citizen. If I throw litter on the ground, and then you know, I pick it up, that doesn't mean that I want everyone to give me a pat on the back. It's just what I have to do. So 
In terms of the, the claims guidance, look, transparency, don't overclaim, don't get over-enthusiastic, you know, is super important. It isn't actually that difficult. And I think, you know, when I look at it, the reality of it is, is that we're, we're dealing with two opposing issues here. Carbon accounting, you never see anyone really promoting their internal carbon accounting and how, you know, their GHG protocol stuff is done. It's because carbon itself is pretty dull. You know, it's a series of numbers which you're supposed to ratchet down every month and you're supposed to ratchet up, you know, your reduction percentages. What is, and sexier, you know, I hope sexy is the wrong word, but, you know, what is brand aligned is really where talking about, you know, the projects on the ground and the good work that is done outside of the carbon reduction. So that's why it's very, very rare that when, you know, corporates talk about the projects that we do behalf or with them, that the headline is about the amount of tons of, of carbon that are reduced. The headline, is, as you well know, uh, Marion, is about the personal impact. So, you know, the key gets back to, I mean, going back to sort of first principles of transparency, and that this is why the net zero process is so, so important, because, you know, I believe that, you know, we should have the net zero targets republished each year or republished on any advertising. And then, you know, you can have a scenario, look, we've reduced X amount of tons. We're still responsible for this many tons. This project is a contribution towards that and it will or has generated X amount of uh, emission reductions or we expect it to generate Y. You know, that level of transparency is not as sexy as saying, you know, we care about the climate and that's why we have funded this, you know, so don't, and also don't try and pull the wool over people's eyes by, you know, if 1% of your budget is going towards, you know, climate or environment type work and the other 99% is going directly to activities that uh, are, you know, in the greenhouse gas sector, et cetera, then that is a pretty bad thing to be leaving with. That's clear, clear greenwash. Equally, I think a really good way of telling if something is greenwash if you are spending more on promoting your climate activity than actually on your climate activities, then it's pretty you know, likely that that is greenwash. The golden rule of walking before talking. I think that we see it within um, our community creators for climate that there is a lot of confusion and a lot of well-intentioned creatives looking to tell sustainable stories over-enthusiastic and maybe green to the space for want of a better word. And yeah, just thanks for touching on that because communication is obviously such an important part of translating this to the consumer, but sometimes it's appealing to that consumer that's driving the compliance in the first place. Yeah, I mean, let's not dissuade that enthusiasm, right? And I think this is the issue, okay? You know, let us turn that enthusiasm into, wouldn't it be great if we could say this? In order to say this, we have to do X and Y and drive some ambition through it. And again, it gets back to that thing of the 62% of the Fortune 500, the ones who aren't getting their ad agency to even engage on this or their marketing department are the ones I'm really, really worried about. The 32% who are pro and positive, let's split, I would say the bulk of the greenwash claims in that area are over-enthusiastic and probably, you know, it's a small minority, although 
these industries have a lot of spend um, who are basically knowingly greenwashing. And I think that you're touching on like a state that many of us experience where it's like, let's not be too critical and stop progress or progress is good. But also where it does get really personal is, you know, just in, in New Zealand where I'm from, you know, a report was published just last week that said the sea level um, is rising twice as fast as expected. And so where greenwashing like hits my heart is, you know, I'm looking to my child and, and, and the future. And so it starts to feel like these misguided CEOs actually are making decisions that could directly impact, you know, my child's life. And that's where I think that maybe I start to sit on the other end of the spectrum and say, well, that's just not good enough. And I guess that's where, you know, more needs to change. Let's take that to its logical conclusion, right? So 62% You've only got a minority that are taking climate action right now. 62% are not. So that tells us that unless they've been asleep for the last three or four years, that they're not going to. So without, they're not going to do it on a voluntary basis. So this gets us back to that thing of, okay, what we need is a mandatory economy-wide price on carbon where actually, you know, if you are running a business that has, yeah, and this this I worry about far more than actually, you know, I mean, I, yeah, every day you see overclaiming, you roll your eyes, but it's, it is how do we get that 62% who just aren't engaged at all and aren't interested into this? And, and, you know, my general view is that we do need to move more towards a law rather than guidance scenario, but not just for claims, but actually for how you run your business. And this is why, you know, I want to move the conversation very much away from just claims, marketing, advertising to, okay, systemically, what is your is your business sustainable? Is it capable of being made sustainable within the time frame that we need? And by that, you know, can it exist with a you know even a 60 euro a tonne carbon price, not let alone a social cost on carbon? Absolutely. Look, the sea level rise for your children in New Zealand and you know my wife's a Kiwi. So you know I, I get where you're coming from, but Actually, climate change is right now in sub-Saharan Africa, in India. And, you know, the thing that makes me wring my hands is that with the global economic system or situation at the moment, we will, you know, we will not be implementing a global, you know, mandatory or even an economy-wide mandatory price on carbon in the next few years with, with inflation rising where it is. No one's going to, no government is going to add to that. But, you know, with the, best will in the world, it is going to become inevitable that that is what happens. And so you will start to see voluntary action, basically, you know, it will be superseded by mandatory, because of course, we are not moving quickly enough um, to get to where we need to be, which is why we don't want to sort of dampen enthusiasm on, on those who are driving it. And we're seeing regulations take place in the EU, in the US, at least asking for more transparent third-party communications on carbon footprints of corporates in the EU and in the US. So this is happening. So yes, regulation is the number one solution. Until we get all those regulations in place, what can we do to move the needle uh, on greenwashing and accelerate the adoption of credible claims? What is it that you at Climate Impact Partners are doing to see progress on that front? What would you like to see in the market to accelerate progress? Look, I think, you know, 
there is has always been an ecosystem of you know standards of certifiers of organizations like climate care and natural capital partners that are now climate impact partners who are focused on integrity and quality and i think it has been quite heartening in the last few years where that's because of the, the sudden interest in the, in, in the market, there has been a lot more collaboration than, than probably there was previously, particularly with the NGO community. You know, as you said, Lucy, quite often a default position of no, no, we don't like offsets or, or you know, um, I still claim there's no such thing as an offset. You know, it's an emission reduction. And the corporate uses that emission reduction or removal to offset its emissions. So offsetting for me is very much a verb. But, and the reason that's sort of important is it puts that responsibility back onto that corporate, you know, the large emitter. And I think what I see now is a huge amount more collaboration with the industry and a huge amount more resource and money, because frankly, before, you know, none of us really had the time to, to put into that. So when I see, you know, VCMI and the work they're doing, I'm really, really heartened. I've got a huge amount of positivity around that initiative because I think, you know, the people involved in it are strong. And, you know, there will always be little bits that each of us disagree with. You know, it doesn't follow our perfect path for, for how this should, should run. And I think it's really important that we put that aside and just say, listen, is this moving things forward? If, it, if we are getting, you know, more engagement, if we're getting a greater degree of credibility, et cetera, it may not be perfect, but like all of these things, we can't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. So I'm very heartened about what I see in the market at the moment. Of course, it's the tip of the iceberg. It's nowhere near enough. We're not reaching the people who we really need to, to reach. And even within that 32%, of companies that have net zero targets, I would say probably about half of them are doing it with real, real integrity. And yeah, that's my sort of uh, finger in the air number, but that's sort of how it feels. So I, you know, that is my sort of real question. How do we get out there and really drive much more engagement amongst those laggards? And it is coming, you know, we are quite often at the sort of first line of when corporates come to this space. And we are seeing lots of new names, whereas, you know, for the previous 10 years, it was the same companies every year. Do you think, Ed, that the, the controversy around carbon neutral and how much criticism it is driving, do you think that that is a hurdle for corporates to engage? And if so, then is there a need to rethink uh, that term and that claim and embrace maybe some of the alternative solutions that are being proposed out there, including the one that the Gold Standard Foundation has proposed, I think, around climate financing claims? You were alluding to that earlier, that companies, if they weren't financing emission reductions, should at least invest in a fund that would do so on their behalf. Do you think that we've reached the limits of what we can achieve with carbon neutrality and that there's a need to sort of reset a little bit uh, the expectations by switching away to a totally different type of claim? Yeah, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the carbon neutral claim where it is used correctly. I think, you know, what's driving obviously the gold standard movement is, okay, well, if there's a double claim on the underlying emission reduction, then in that case, should that be usable for a carbon neutral claim? And I think, you know, I have a huge amount of sympathy for that. And 
So I'm not against a different, as I said, my personal preference is, is a sort of climate responsible or carbon responsible type element. And, you know, I even see people not understanding that, you know, when we talk about carbon, we're talking about the basket of greenhouse gases, including you know, the short-lived climate pollutants. And, you know, because for so many of these, things like methane are such a massive short-term driver um, of impact. So... In terms of do we need a different term from carbon neutrality, I think the danger of moving away from it now is we're just getting traction with the general community. And to ask them to then relearn a new set of criteria, even if they're better, is this the right time? So I welcome that debate, though. And if actually we've only got 32% of people on board with net zero and probably less on carbon neutral or, or, or whatever, maybe actually, yeah, we wouldn't be giving that much up. So the answer to that question is, I don't know. And, you know, I'd love to hear more people in the climate space saying, I don't know, because this is a time of flux. And, you know, we need to have these debates and have these discussions. I think my concerns, so, so we have always had, because we're a project developer at Climate Care, we've always had corporate clients involved in the financing of project development from, from scratch. And, you know, you know, Marion, that during that last decade where actually no one really said they were carbon neutral, we had loads of clients um, who just weren't interested in the carbon outcomes. But what happened then was they would finance the project or, or work with us to finance the project, but then they didn't want to spend the extra money on the rigorous MRV elements, which would allow us to calculate the emission reductions. And then it wouldn't necessarily go through such a rigorous third-party verification process. or, or you know. So my concern is that it won't, the, the new claims of contributions, that we need to be very, very careful. One, it 100% preserves the ton-for-ton ton responsibility with corporates. I think that is super important. You know, I would hate it to be a situation where a corporate was deriving the same marketing impact from just talking about its financial contribution that didn't generate a commensurate amount of emission reductions. Because if I think about, you know, an example, if you've got a corporate with a residual footprint of 10 million tons, you know, it promotes a project contribution where a million tons has been reduced and it makes just as much of a marketing splash about it, spends the same amount of money, focuses on those person impacts or the just the other impacts. Technically, no greenwash there, but you've got a deficit of 9 million tonnes in the atmosphere. In the current situation, if that corporate funds a series of projects which reduce 10 million tonnes, and you have a variance of 10% on the efficacy of the project, which is often what people moan about with, with Greenwell. Actually, it said it would reduce a million tonnes, but only really, we think it reduced 900,000. Then we have a deficit of 1 million tonnes, but everyone shouts greenwash. So... What is better for the planet out of those, a deficit of 9 million tons or, or, uh, or the 1 million tons? So I'm, you know, I don't have the answers to it. I'm very, very keen as a project developer that we work through this financial contribution model. And I think it does get away from what Lucy was talking about, the very cheap offsets, the very commoditized credits that come through. And it can work, but we just have to really work on the functional integrity of that process. That was a long answer. 
a, a long but but really really detailed and 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 much welcome answer to this to this important question. Ed, thank you so much for for being with us to discuss credible claims. There were a number of key takeaways from my side from this conversation. One is, uh, and I really like this turn of phrase that you shared with us, Ed, it's really about being climate responsible, right? And being climate responsible doesn't make you a climate hero. It's just a, the minimum of, of what is required from a good citizen. Uh, so it's the starting point. It's not the end of the journey. I also like the way you framed offsets as being a price signal that can be understood by the CFOs of those uh, large companies and give them the incentive they need to invest in reductions internally. And the higher the price point, obviously, the better the business case for internal reductions. And that's why I think the entire market is, is happy to see the price of emission reductions go up. It was great to have your, your perspective. It feels like a big part of the solution to greenwashing and the lack of credibility in claims lies in regulations. Uh, we're seeing some of that happen, but there's still a long way to go. And you talked about some of the initiatives that we're seeing in the market, including the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market or the Voluntary Carbon Market Integrity Initiative. I see those as the market self-regulating itself in the absence of proper regulation. So hopefully those initiatives will send a strong signal to regulators that it's time for them to, to do their job and let the market do its job. Thanks for that, Ed. Over to you, Lucy. Yeah, thanks for that. And, you know, interesting time and again that the issue of compliance comes up. And I think we are seeing this change, you know, there are... There is talk of climate of whether greenwashing is actually a climate crime and you know activists are succeeding and so if competitive advantage to consumers wasn't enough to drive your motivation to yeah not pollute our planet i think that a life behind bars might just be enough so thanks so much for this conversation and yeah, your, your serious engagement with it. Yeah, great. And I think you're absolutely right. Look, to my mind, you know, climate responsible is the, you know, is the nice way of putting it, but climate culpable is the, you know, is the other way. And I think we all you know, need to be very, very aware of that. And it will come to that, I'm pretty sure. Well, that's a really enthusiastic round <laughs> roundup to this podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for the conversation, Bob. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ed. That concludes this month's episode of How to Net Zero. To learn more about this episode and our guest today, visit sustaincert.com, How to Net Zero. Our podcast is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover this by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform.